everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of Authors on the Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with author Jeremy Zoll. Born in 1995 with a warped sense of humor, Jeremy sold his first short story at age 18 and his first professional story at age 19. His work has appeared in Nature, Abyss and Apex, Grimdark Magazine, Lightspeed, Strange Horizons, The Drabblecast, and on Tor.com. He used to be the fiction editor for the Hugo-winning podcast Starship Sofa, where he worked with authors such as George R. R. Martin, William Gibson, Joe R. Lansdale, Robin Hobb, Joe Abercrombie, and a multitude of others. He is thrilled to be represented by John Gerald of the John Gerald Liter- Literary Agency, although he isn't quite sure how that happened. Uh, a xenophile and a drinker of too many craft beers. He, hey, you can't have too many craft beers. Uh, he carves out a living in Sydney, Australia, although he prefers colder weather. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Zoll. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on, David. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing this morning? Yeah, not too bad. That's actually, you know, as we said earlier, like that's quite an old bio. I'm not sure where you dug that up from, but, you know, I'll take it. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you want to add to it, be my guest. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, like I, I wrote it before I got the book deal. So, you know, I've um, uh, three, I've got a three book deal now coming out from Galantz. Uh, and the first Stormblood is due on June uh, 4, which is only about six weeks from now. And it's a dark space opera with a uh, noir mystery twist. I gotcha. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we'll definitely get into that a little bit later uh, for sure because uh, I'm in the middle of reading it. I know we've, uh, you've already got a couple of sparkling reviews for it. So, but um, kind of uh, kind of to start out, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, tell me about growing up and going through school and I guess getting, getting into this uh, Starship Sofa podcast and I guess, you know, up to now. Yeah, um, I actually didn't go to school, uh, and I'm not. Tra- I'm not before you assume that you know I'm an uneducated nitwit. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was a uh, is an English teacher at university level, and so I was homeschooled. Uh, me and my sister, and when I was ten, we moved to Austria uh, because my dad's from Poland, and we had to do a few things over there. Like both relatives had died, and he had to type a few things, so we just moved for a couple of years, and so. I did. So I was homeschooled when I was living in Austria and I was always a reader. Um, you know, I'd be reading at a very early level, like Enid Blight and that sort of thing. But the tiny village we were living in on the top of a mountain in Austria, uh, for some reason did have a very, very small English library. And so I could clear that out in no time. Uh, but then when I started, you know, getting a little bit older, I started wanting something a little more media, and so when, whenever, whenever we would go to England, we would always, always go to the bookstores. And so I just pick up, you know, a bunch of titles. Uh, among them, I think the, a series I remember loving then and still do is the Gone series by Michael Grant. Um, that really got me into science fiction as a genre. Like I never really thought of genres as genre, I don't think. I just thought of whatever books I liked and whatever I didn't. Um, so I really was fond of Artemis Fowl. I never thought of it as, um, urban fantasy or whatever. Uh, then I started getting older. I started moving away from that, started moving more into crime and mysteries. Again, didn't really think of genres, didn't really think of, you know, what the sort of book I liked reading. And so I just pick up a few things. I picked up some Stephen King, uh, when I was way, way too young for it, uh, because that was just the cover appeal to me. And, 
My parents, my mum got really angry when I brought it home from the library and she saw me reading it <laughs> at like age 14, at age like 13 or something. Uh, that was an interesting conversation. But um, yeah, and I just remember walking to a Waterstones and seeing the cover of an Ian M. Banks novel and there's something about the planet and the spaceships and whatever just really appealed to me. You know, I did, and I knew that I would never be able to understand you know, the cult, uh, the cult, something like the culture, like, you know, unless you know the culture with Ian and Banks, you're not going to understand some of the books. Like even if, even doesn't matter how old you are. And so I didn't buy it or anything, but I just remember really liking it. Um, but that, yeah, that's basically it. I would, uh, read whatever I got my hands on. And so when we did come back to Australia, um, I would be, you know, be picking up a few books, but like, uh, Maria, the Snyder, who's an Australian author, uh, Brandon Sanderson, and a bunch of others. I never, again, I never really thought of genre as genre. I just picked up whatever appealed to me, and I just slowly grew up from there. And when I stopped being homeschooled, and I think it was year ten, because in Australia you need to do the HSC, which is basically you know d- deciding if you get into university or not. So I did go to school in year eleven and twelve. And by then I was taking up a lot of creative writing classes and starting to get back into writing. Uh, sorry, I little backtrack a little bit. I did, I was writing very early on and when I was like 12 and 13. And as you can guess, it wasn't my, anything special at that age and it is locked away for no one to read ever. Um, but I was doing it back then, but then I stopped for a few years. And then when I got into school, I started having an interest in it again. And it was around this time that I think I was 16 or so that uh, I'd seen uh, someone had given me the first season of Game of Thrones uh, again when I was way too young for it. Uh, when I so I watched that and I just I was really gripped by the idea of a fantasy world, and so that's when I think I started thinking in terms of genre. Like this is the sort of thing I like. Like I always did like it, but I never really immediately thought of fantasy as a genre in itself that appealed to me. And so I started getting more of it. And I, I, I uh, read A Song of Ice and Fire in, in its entirety between classes. And so then it was, you know, when I f- did finish school, uh, when I finished, you know, year 12, the final year of school, I started writing again. And I basically wrote a very terrible first novel that again will never be, uh, is locked away in a concrete bunker so it doesn't unleash hell on the world. Yeah. And uh, then as I you know, went to university, I started taking creative writing classes there. And um, I wrote another novel that was a YA novel, and that was also terrible. Uh, so then I was, I was experimenting with genres. I wasn't really sure what to write. And then eventually when I finished university, I wrote a – I decided at the time, okay, I could go into work full-time or I could go into writing a try again at a novel. And so I took another run at it. And in three months, I had a first draft of a space opera murder mystery called The Rogue Galaxy. And that's the novel that got me an agent with John Gerald at the age of 20. That's impressive. (laughs) Thank you. For sure. Um, So, uh, so where do you uh, where do you typically find yourself writing? I mean, I know it's probably changed from when you were a little bit younger up to now, but do you usually write at home? Do you? I mean, before COVID, did you go out and about and write at coffee shops or bars? Or I, mean, I know yeah. I know authors are all over the place when it comes to that question. 
Yeah, yeah. I if I I feel like a trapped wolf of, if I'm at home. You know, not and not only just because if I'm at home, my family who are around seem to think that that means I'm, you know, dis, I'm just on edge and dispensable for any tool or task that needs doing, be it vacuuming, washing, or whatever else that needs, or some technical support or whatever. So being uh, going out and being unavailable helps quite a bit. <laughs> um, so yeah, I live near the beach in Sydney, Australia, and so I usually go down. Uh, to a little beach cafe and do some writing. And there's this one cafe near me that I actually probably wrote probably about half of Stormblood in, at the very least half. And so, you know, it's kind of a ritual for me to go there and write the sequels and outline the sequels and all that. Uh, you know, there's a few funky bars there. Sometimes I go into the city uh, when I want to make a day of it. And, yeah, but I, I do find that I do work best when I am in a public place and I've got a pint of beer with me uh because i i have no distractions and i have no internet that i can go on and so being there and i guess being in a place that's not home kind of tricks my brain into thinking i'm at work i guess and so that i'm not at home so i don't have all my things with me so i'm you know i'm, I'm kind of forced to work and so my brain kind of switches into that mode where i'm just focused and that's the best that's when I do the best work. I find that when I'm completely absorbed in the work, I can't just be distracted and hopping in and out of it. You know, I'll lose my, my train of thought will go skidding and crashing sideways. So the best thing to do possible is usually to go out. Yeah. And of course, uh, a pint of beer doesn't hurt. Yeah. So, <laughs> that. I can imagine. <laughs> it, for what it's worth, it is actually proven that like beer does, uh, does increase your creativity. Like there's actually a Swedish company that just makes beer that has just the right amount of alcohol to like trigger something in your brain that increases uh, creativity. But they also say that if you have too much of it, your brain will do the opposite. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, I'm very, I'm very fond of that science. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> um, so, uh, so tell me a little bit about your writing process. Are you an architect or are you a gardener? Yeah, I don't really think people are either one. I think a lot of people are a bit of both or somewhere in the middle. I don't think anyone is completely one or the other. I mean, you know, even if you are an architect, even when you're drawing up the architecture plans, you know, and I'm I, my part-time job is a construction laborer, so I'm pretty apt at this metaphor. You know, even if you're, you know, deciding where the walls go, where the electricity goes where the plumbing's gonna run you know you've still got to do some of it from scratch yeah uh -huh. you can't you have to even if you're outlining you still have to you can't just outline the outline of your outline yeah some of it has to come from nowhere some of it has to just come from sitting there and wondering what do i do and there's different levels to that obviously but at some point you what you're doing comes from scratch or or, or a spur of the moment uh and so I am a bit of both. Uh, Stormblood 1, the first book, I didn't really think of it as, you know, as a, a book that it was going to be published, you know, as you do. You know, I didn't have it. I didn't have an agent when I was writing it. I uh, just come off my Ella novel and I wanted to do something a little bit different. And so I just sat down and I'm like, okay, what I want to do, I want to have it about, you know, 
alien storm as alien biotech i want to write it in first person i want it to be voice driven i want it to be set in space very space opera with aliens and spaceships and what have you but also very cosmopolitan very urban and so i just threw it all together and i knew the end game i knew where i kind of wanted it to end up but as i went along i discovered things about the book and where i wanted to take it and the sort of things that i wanted to write about and themes that grew out of it so it was definitely a bit of both i would definitely say it was more of just a random haphazard uh run of a novel type of novel i'd never written before mm-hmm. books two though what the one i'm writing now i think that was definitely more um more planned i did sit down and really write okay what do i want to do where do i want to take the story where do i want to take the characters what are themes that i want to play with what are set pieces i want to do you know i want to have i want to go to other planets i want to have a spaceship battle i want to have you know this sort i want the characters to be stranded without backup support i want you know i want these situations to happen and i want the character to characters to develop outside of them or i want these character arcs to feed into these set pieces or what have you. Uh-huh. And so I would, I would be doing that. And the interesting thing about being planning that is that you will get to that point and you realize actually my characters don't want to do this or I don't want to do this or I can think of something better. And I was, and just recently, you know, I figured out that I had a major problem with book two. And it was one of the characters. I just didn't like him. I didn't understand him. Every time he was in a scene, I didn't have to deal with him. And I've pretty much got to know a character before I can think of how they fit into the dialogue and the situations and that sort of thing. And so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to kill him. I'm just going to kill him really early on. And I'm just going to write a completely new character. And it fixed, fixed so much. It fixed so much that I didn't realize was holding me back. And if I didn't outline it, I would never know. I would never know that it wasn't working until it was too late. So it's kind of that same principle. You know, there are themes that I I thought, you know what, I'm going to outline. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write about in book two. But then when I got to it, I'm like, you know what, I'm not interested in that anymore. Uh, I'm interested in exploring something else. And so being outlining gives you the chance to really see where you're going to go wrong or see when you it's basically a process of elimination you have to get it down to know you don't want to do it and that's certainly the case for me so yeah that makes sense i mean and and yeah i mean i know a lot of people uh a lot of authors you know fly by the seat of the pants and they just write a novel and see where it takes them and they don't want to take you know the time to write an outline because more than likely they won't you know actually go by it at all. Uh, and then you, you know, like, like in your instance where you are sitting there going, why in the world is this not working? And then one thing you're like, Oh, that fixed everything. Let's, you know, that, that yeah. shows yeah. you that it does work for some, you know, and it, and it's a pretty handy tool. Uh, especially, you know, if you're trying to figure out why some of the pieces of the puzzle don't fit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when I was younger, going back to that discussion we had when I was, writing when I was younger, I would just write as it came to me. I wouldn't really stop to think about the larger repercussions. And, you know, because, you know, this is the way my brain works. It's just very instant. And, you know, I'll repeat myself and I'll, you know, subtlety is basically a sledgehammer in my first draft. And, you know, there's almost no, you know, 
there's no proper build up, not the way it should be. And so, you know, I wouldn't really see the flaws in that. I just write it as it is. Yep. This is the sort of thing I want to do without this is, I want to have an action scene here without thinking, okay, I just had a, two action scenes in the last 75 pages. I'll be overdoing it a little bit. And so really taking a step back and seeing the flaws in your own process and knowing your brain, okay, this is the way I work. How can I counteract that? And so it, it takes, I think, a bit of patience. You have to be patient with yourself a little bit. And so being able to do that with, over the years has really helped me become a better writer, I, I would definitely think. I gotcha. Um, you kind of hit a little bit on this earlier. Uh, kind of more, I guess, told us why science fiction somewhat. But who would you say that, I guess, your main writing influences were? I mean, I know you read King and you read some, you know, or you at least looked at covers for Ian and Banks books. Um, <laughs> but I guess, you know, who, who really like struck the chord and you're like, all right, I'm going to start this writing thing. Uh, do you mean earlier on or recently? Uh, either, either or both, whichever one you would go with. Why, why don't we go with both? <laughs> okay. Earlier on, uh, I'm not really sure. Look, I, again, like when I started, I told when I was about 16, 17, I was a lot, very into fantasy. And so, you know, there was obviously, you know, Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire. And then so I started branching out into uh, Joe Abercrombie, uh, Mark Lawrence, Brandon Sanderson, uh, Patrick Rothfuss, all the usual names. Uh, but then over the year, and so I'd try to emulate that. And so I'd be writing a lot of epic fantasy. And it just didn't work for me because I would think, you know, we'll talk about this later, I guess. Mm. Um, because, you know, I try to emulate that, obviously. And so I'd be writing you know, these big sprawling novels that book one was one part of a six part saga and there were 20 POV, 10 POVs, 20 POVs, and that all intersect and slowly unfurl and slowly come together. And to say I bit off more than I could chew is a understatement of the century. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. And as I got further on into writing that sort of thing, I realized this just really wasn't for me. It didn't have the same, it didn't grip me in the same way. And so I grew a little bit frustrated um, because I didn't really, I was just trying to emulate what I read. And I wasn't really reading science fiction at the time. I was just doing fantasy. And so I, I would think I was just a bit frustrated. Uh, then I think I did forget to mention that part of what did get me into science fiction was when I did finish school, I uh, got an Xbox because I'd always wanted one. And I've always been a fan of Halo. And Halo Reach has definitely been a big influence on Stormblood uh, in a lot of ways, especially in the flashback sequences. Um, and so then I would play the Halo games and then I'd think, you know what, I'd like to read the Halo novels. And I discovered there was something like 20 of them. And some of them were written by big science fiction authors like Tobias Buckle, Karis Traven, Greg Bear. So once I read the Halo novels and really enjoyed them, I started reading um, their books, the author's books. And I found, okay, this is really my thing. This is really what I'm into. And by that time, I'd stopped reading fantasy because a lot of what I was reading were usually these big, sprawling, epic novels. And they tended to be the books where everyone was, you know, complete dirtbag. There was no one to root for. It was, you know, no, there was just misery and people hating, spiteful people just hating each other. And someone like Joe Abercrombie, a lot of the time, is able to do something like that because of his humor, 
because of his playfulness and because of his voice. And I completely missed that by a mile. And in my own writing and some of the other books that I'd read didn't have that same humor and that same, uh, you know, direct, earnest voice that Joe Abercrombie does that he does so brilliantly. And so I just got a really burned out on fantasy. But to go into your other question about the now, what really ticked me over, I think, was uh, when I picked up Red Rising by Pierce Brown. And it just gripped me from end to end, you know, that sort of, and I just couldn't believe how much I loved it. And I just tore through that book like wildfire. And, uh, and I thought, you know, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to write. And then uh, I think I picked up uh, Golden Sun as well. And I love that even more. And I just realized it kind of clicked for me. Okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to write. This is what I want to read. So I started, you know, reading uh, Ian and Banks, started reading Alistair Reynolds, started reading um, a bunch of other sci-fi authors, smaller sci-fi authors as well. Uh, you know, Peter of Hamilton, Neil Asher. I'd always read them, but just on the periphery. Now it was my central focus. And uh, then I picked up Altered Carbon by Richard Morgan. And that clicked for me in a structural sense because uh, I'd never really read noir before. Not really. And so that really the first person uh, driven sort of uh, narrative where you're inside a character's head as they, you know, walk from place to place, as they go to eat breakfast, as they go to walk along the street in their own head, turning over stones with their shoes, like that really clicked for me. And I thought, okay, this is the sort of thing I want to do. And so I basically combined that, you know, grounded, focused narrative of something like Altered Carbon with the big sprawling space opera style of fiction with, uh, that's in Ian and Banks and Alistair Reynolds. And I basically structured that with um, Pierce Brown sort of narrative where his, he's very, very character driven. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of uh, world building, but it never takes away from the characters. In fact, it enhances it. You know, it's character from, from start to start. And the main character never stops caring for people he loves and not, never stops caring for his friends. And that really had a big influence on me. And I, I just felt like, okay, this is what I want. This is what I want to do. So uh, that's where Stormblood came from. I got you. I, uh, I definitely agree about how wonderful Red Rising is. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a it's a series that I kind of came in late. I think I think I started like I binged the first three books right before Iron Gold came out, and uh, and man, he's he's got me hooked for life. Yeah, yeah. I do have opinions on Dark Age. Um, I've never read a book like it. I'll say that much, but the interesting thing about, um, you know, reading, being a fan and reading that sort of things that you unadulterate, have an unadulterated love for is also seeing the flaws and seeing things that you would do differently. Mm -hmm. And it helps. And I, I honestly think that nitpicking is not necessarily a bad thing. I think nitpicking can be a, an expression of, of love of, you know, I love this so much and I would like to make it just a little bit more better. And so, you know, in reading the, some of these books, uh, I can sometimes see or I think, not the thing that think they could do better, of course, because, you know, who am I? But things that, okay, this didn't work for me as well, or I would have liked something personally 
I'm not a storyteller, but I would have liked something to go a little bit differently. And I can kind of learn from that as well. If, I mean, we're all, I mean, writing is a conversation, you know, a books are a conversation, you know, it's nothing is written in a vacuum. And so being able to, you know, see, draw from a wider spectrum, you know, of emotions within one book, I think really helps. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, can you um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, Starship Sofa, the podcast that you were that you were the editor for? I'm I'm intrigued. Uh, I I'd never heard of it. I, honestly, I wasn't really what <laughs> I've never really been into podcasts before I started one. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, pa- pandemic really got to you, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was, you know, starting to write short fiction and starting to, you know, weasel my way into the, you know, fandom scene like a like a parasite basically. And I never really heard of it and I was trying to, you know, get a foothold, you know, get a a position where I could start building up a career from. And one of my friends shared a link uh, to Starship Surfer with the offer of a job because the former assistant had left. And I'd never heard of it either. But then I looked up and saw that they won a Hugo Award. I think they won the first Hugo for the first podcast to ever win a Hugo Award, the first po- first anything to win for best fa- fanzine or fan cast. And so I looked at the authors that they played. Like they played, you know, some um, – in the first like 20 episodes alone, they play like T.F. Chung, Jeff Vandermeer, Tobias Buckle, Michael Moorcock, uh, you know, Peter Watts, all these, you know, ma- major, major names. And I'm like, oh, wow, they've really got a repertoire. And so I contacted and asked if I could join. And I must have been annoying enough that the host, Tony, just let me do it. And so... I think from episode 360, basically, up until very, very recently, one – oh, yeah, that was that was me. I would basically just contact authors, be that – it doesn't matter if it was, you know, George R. Martin, uh, Joe Abercrombie or Peter Watts, Ted Chan, Paolo Bacigalupi, whoever, and say, hey, can we buy the rights to one of your short stories and we'll adapt it into audio on the podcast? And – I was not expecting as many people to say yes as they as as they did, uh, and so I had quite my hands full to say the least. And I was still at university at the time, and I was still writing at the time. So to say, I, I was quite busy, and I was really surprised by how many downloads we did get. And I never really realized until a couple of years back that we were getting something like ten. We were getting like eight thousand downloads an episode a week, uh, and then as I was there because I started doing so much social media presence and contacting authors who had, who were a lot, who were a lot more contemporary. Uh, they started telling about their fans to go and listen to them. So we started getting something like 12,000 downloads per episode, you know, which is crazy right. uh, a week, which is crazy. And so, you know, that was really helped. And then when I reached out to George R. R. Martin and resurrected an old story from the seventies, uh, I think it's called the Men of Grey War Station. It never appeared online. It was never reprinted. It was in one anthology, or one you know short story collection that he co-wrote with Howard Waldrop. And I just reached out randomly and said, "Hey, could I have it?" And I was not expecting him to respond, but as it happened, he did. And he's like, "Okay, but you know, it's not in print, right? There's no online version." I'm like, 
no, I didn't know that. And so he's like, well, I can send you a carbon copy of it. And I'm like, okay, this is really getting interesting. But then my editor, Tony, went out and scoured secondhand book collections. He must have like scoured like every collection in England, every secondhand bookstore in the UK, just to find a short, find it. And I think he found an old, moth-bitten, worn, crumbling old manuscript. And we sent it off to a narrator to read it. And he did. And within, and then when, as soon as we uploaded it, within a week, we had 150,000 downloads. Good grief. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it helped that George Armand himself posted it on his blog and said how much he enjoyed it and said you know, how, how much he reminisced listening to something that he wrote something like over 40 years ago. Right. But boy, like that was not expecting it to be that huge. Like everyone posted about it. Like they ended up being YouTube theories about it. They ended up being, you know, whole form discussions of it, you know, and, and that was crazy. And because my name was mentioned in it, you know, I was not expect. I would, you know, started finding that I got like all these messages from people and all these people coming to my website. I'm like, okay, this is unprecedented. So that made, kind of made me realize how big that podcast was. And, uh, yeah, so that was, that was quite interesting, but, uh, and I did that over the years and we had some really cool narrators. Uh, interestingly enough, one, one voice actor came to us who's had, you know, she's had speaking roles in like HBO's Boardwalk Empire and a bunch of random movies and TV shows. And she came to us out of the blue and said, Hey, I heard about your podcast. Can I narrate for you? And I'm like, okay, is the Pope a Catholic? Of course he can direct for us. <laughs> and uh, then we had this one guy who's done a couple of stories from us. He's been in like 70 films and he had like, he had like a massive speaking role against Woody Harrelson and Judy Greer in a indie film a couple of years back. So it was pretty, his name is Paul Cram and he's an awesome narrator. And so it was the most random thing ever to just work with these people and, you know, send them these manuscripts that I picked out of the slush part. And they're like, yep, let's sit down. Well, I mean, that is, uh, that is so awesome. Um, and I, obviously I'd love to talk about it more, but, uh, let's, um, let's talk about your debut from Gallant. So, uh, so Stormblood book one in the common series, uh, which hits on, like you said earlier on June 4th across the pond and in Canada, it's a new science fiction novel about alien technology, addictive upgrades, a soldier determined to protect his family and a thief who is prepared to burn the world down. And you're calling it, Blade Runner and the Dark Knight meet Mass Effect 2. I mean, wow. I mean, does life get better? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, can you uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about, you know, kind of what they can expect going into Stormblood? Um, yeah, it's a, as I said earlier, it's a first person, very driven science fiction novel that's, you know, I think on the surface it's a little cyberpunk cyberpunky but then it, it, it expands and gets a lot more space opera and a lot more weirder and a lot more bizarre in the sense that alistair reynolds is bizarre and peter watts is bizarre now you have these you know really weird aliens and all this these really weird technology that's used that's gone to the that is ubiquitous to the point where they can they're able to be things are a little bit strange like for example there's you know, people wear these underskins, yeah, these kind of suits, but people can also have these kind of suits that turns them into like monsters. They can look like neon skeletons or they can look like, you know, a, a comic book, a comic book figure, like, you know, that's drawn with ink and charcoal that's constantly moving to give it a, that sort of aesthetic. And, you know, there are buildings that, you know, look like these 
basically massive cathedrals that are basically built to look like four giant animals that have merged and fused together. So there's a building that the characters go to that's basically part elk, part bat, part squid, part wolf. And they've all got like, you know, spires sticking out of its spinal cord. They've got, you know, fungal, what look like fungal growths growing out of the fur. And, you know, there's windows that come from, you know, their eyes and that sort of thing. And so I, it was very deliberate that I wanted to have it something that was a bit off, that it wasn't just, okay, you know, well, we're on a space station. Everything's white and clinical and clean and easily accessible, you know. And I re- I'm a really big fan of visual, very striking visuals and prose because I've got a film background. As I, I did film science in university, and so I'm a very big fan of from saying something like Blade Runner, uh, especially the the latest one, the sequel, where you know you have a very striking visual palette that almost looks like a painting in motion. You know, if you look. You know, you imagine looking outside of a, a rain-streaked window and you see all the neon lights and all the skyscrapers and all the uh, planes flying in the sky and it looks like, you know, a painting in motion. And you really get a gritty aesthetic sense of where you are and the sort of world that you're wrapped up in. And that's something I really want people to get uh, from the world. But I think I, it's interesting because I think a lot of people who read the book early on we're expecting it to be, you know, a very action-packed, you know, pedal to the metal book. You know, um, one early reviewer said that, you know, it's about an, a former soldier who's got alien DNA in him that, you know, will make him, you know, he's got this thing in him that makes him addicted to adrenaline and aggression that, you know, there's an a earlier, early description early on that, you know, there's no, he has to look away from someone's, someone holding a gun because, you know, there's no such thing as a fantasy for him. That if he thinks about taking that gun and sh- ripping it out of someone's hand and shooting him and then shooting five other people, if he dwells on that long enough, he will do it. And so he's got to stop himself thinking that. And I think a lot of people are expecting it to be, you know, a hardcore mercenary that's, you know, heartless bastard mercenary. And this same reviewer said that he was not expecting that brotherhood and camaraderie and friendship and family would play into the book as much as it did because the the whole premise of it is that this main character Vako Fakasawa he came he fought in a war that a very brutal war that he and his fellow soldiers were injected with this alien DNA and that it basically turned the body chemistry haywire turned them upside down and they were faced with this brutal enemy and so the only way to cope with it, the only way to survive was was bonding closer together and knowing that they had each other's backs and knowing that no matter what happened, no matter what held up or dragged through, they'd always have each other to to lean on. That they'd always have each other's support. And so that that same brotherhood, that same friendship he developed with his fellow soldiers uh, was echoed when he was a child uh, with his younger brother, and his younger brother was. Uh, they were living in this very poor backwater planet that had an abusive father. The world, like the planet, was you know infested with the criminals and drugs. And the only way that they survived that, the only way that they came out of it, that trauma, was by leaning on each other and by you know taking care of each other. And he especially took care of his younger brother. But for for reasons that become obvious in the book, he abandoned his brother and ran away from home. 
uh, when he was 18, 19 to join off to join the war and got injected with this DNA. And when he comes back, his brother doesn't want to borrow him, you know, because he says, well, you left me with my abusive father. You know, you knew you were the only person around with me and you, you abandoned me. And so he comes back and then finds out that his fellow soldiers, his reapers, uh, are actually being murdered. And the first person that he actually sees the body of is uh, his former squad leader, the man that basically roped him into that brotherhood. And, you know, he, the heartstrings get tugged on. And then he gets really aggressive and angry about it. He's like, oh, I'm going to take this person down. Who's killing them? Who's doing this? And then they reveal that it's his brother who's the prime suspect, who's the prime suspect in overdosing them. And so that, and his heart just drops into his guts. And so that central conflict, you know, of being stuck between worlds, stuck between loyalties, drives the whole narrative. You know, that's, that's the one thing, if I had to pick, drives the narrative. It's not plot. Uh, it's not world building. It's not, you know, action sequences. It's that, it's that character relation. It's those relationships. It's that brotherhood. Uh, and, that, and it's that friendship that he has both with his uh, brother now and his fellow soldiers and his current friends who help him solve the murder. Mm -hmm. And I think reviewers were not expecting that. I think a lot of them seemed to be expecting that it was going to be this nonstop action sequence, uh, you know, with this battle-hardened mercenary, but it also has these very tender moments and very emotional moments uh, that I actually cut down action sequences significantly just to just to insert, to really drive home, you know, how much this hurts, you know, how much, you know, seeing, going through this, actually what it feels like. And that's very important to me. And so that's what I think people will, will draw people to it eventually. And I hope it's something that appeals to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, just, just having read, you know, a, a small portion, which you've already shamed me for <laughs> off air, but uh, <laughs> I mean, would you, would you say that, you know, you've kind of instilled some, some almost like PTSD kind of like not really sequences, but like you kind of feel uh, with the main character, you know, after this war and kind of coming back into society and how he's supposed to cope with this whole, you know, this, this new, you know, uh, alien tech that's inside of him, you know, how he's kind of integrate himself back in to where it's not all war. It's, you know, civilization and, you know, trying to get through every day without having to worry about being, you know, killed or anything like that. I mean, would you, would you say that, would you say that that's kind of an element you've incorporated in the story? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and the thing about trauma is that it doesn't go away in the sense that we think about it because even, you know, you see a lot in films and TV shows where, you know, one character will have this traumatic, traumatic event and, you know, the whole hero's journey will basically be them getting the strength to go back and conquer the, conquer the, their fears and going up to the person who did things to them and look them, in, look them in the eye and tell them what they're thinking the moment before they put them down. And I wanted to subvert that a little because trauma doesn't work like that. Human psychology doesn't work like that. And there's actually a, I think, said led this is something said by one of the characters later on after she's gone through something and she says you know this guy who's done this to me you know he's dead he's gone and i'm gonna have to deal with the repercussions of what he's done for the rest of my life what he did took 30 seconds what he did took 
a few minutes and now this is something that is going to weigh on me that's going to impact my life impact the people i know forever and there's nothing I, i can do about it you know and and that's the same with people that you know in real life i mean people can say sorry People can say, I, I wish I didn't do that. People can have consequences. People can get punished, you know, and that's, that's something we see in the judicial system and criminal uh, syst- law system all the time. You know, people get punished or have repercussions for their actions, but it doesn't stop the victims, the people who suffered from ever getting, you know, ever being scot-free from it. That's something they're going to have to deal with for the rest of their lives. And there's absolutely nothing they can do about that. And you know, we've all gone through things in our lives that have impacted us for better and for worse, and we can't get rid of them. You know, you can't just, the human mind does, can't lie to itself. Your, your thoughts are, uh, are unfiltered. You know, you, you can lie to other people, but you can't lie to yourself. And so that's something I definitely wanted to w- incorporate into my book, you know, especially the idea that these soldiers, they literally have this alien DNA in them forever. And it's there, it's fused to their nervous system, their bones, their blood, everything. And that's something I, you know, I'm, I'm never going to introduce a magic cure or a way that it, they lose that, that the alien DNA, or they get it out of them. You know, n- at no point in the three books am I ever going to do that. Mm. Uh, it's there to stay. And even if I did, the memory of it, the muscle memory of it, the, the experience can't be taken away. And so I, that's something I, I think I put in very strongly and they, you know, they, they, the main character of Arkov, I think you probably read the sequence as well that he says, you know, my fellow soldiers, they were the only ones who knew what it was like to be in cover wearing this 200 kilogram armor and, you know, feeling the bullets coming at me, chewing my cover away and being excited. Yeah. Like the, the bullets are coming, the danger's coming, the enemy's coming. You know, the only people who knew what it was like to stand there and feel like this, alien organisms you know go sniffing up your spinal cord and into your brain and uh and you know that's something that drew them together and that's not something that they can forget and it's something that only few people can ever experience and so that drew them together that same trauma is something that drew them together as well and so i did that because i didn't want it to be all doom and gloom and because, you know, I don't think real life works like that. And I don't really think even if it did, I don't really think that's a pleasant reading experience to just be following a depressed, moping character for 500 pages. Mm-hmm. And so that's why there's a lot of humor in the book. And there's a lot of uh, uh, l- not lighthearted scenes, but a lot of, you know, scenes of like that are fun between characters, characters interacting. And uh, but, yeah, that was done very deliberately to have that trauma uh, and that memory in there. And. It's interesting because I had one beta reader who read a very, very early copy of the book who said, you know, how does this guy should be a nightmare to deal with? How the hell is he, you know, got friends? You know, how the hell is he, you know, even remotely a normal person? And the answer is that that people are complicated and that people are messy and that being able to have a character who one minute, you know, is fighting off, you know, the memory of gunfire, the memory of in the seeing his friends cut in half in front of him and then learning to deal with that as he deals with his new friends, dealing with his new brother. That's the conflict I'm interested in. That's the sort of uh, juxtaposition that I think makes for a good character. Yeah. Um, so you kind of touched a little bit on your, on your world building. I mean, and, and it, I know it's a plays a kind of a minuscule role uh, in the, in the story itself, but 
I mean, I guess would you would you say it's kind of a mix between like Blade Runner and maybe like Ghost in the Shell, uh, maybe even like the new Cyberpunk game that's coming out. It's just very like you know neon billboards and uh, you know high skyscrapers and kind of buildings not necessarily four cornered. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that it's minimalist uh, or it's minimal, the world building. I, de- I definitely wouldn't say, I mean, I'm more interested in world building than I am plot. And I, by plot, I mean, I don't mean story. I mean, plot by meaning you go from a to B, go from find the league that gets you from B to C and find the note that gets you to point D uh, story is the overarching narrative, you know, but that we can have a whole part. That's a whole part podcast on its own. Uh, but a world building I think I'm definitely interested in and I don't I wouldn't really categorize it as cyberpunk I think early on it probably resembles something that's a little more cyberpunk but as you go into the narrative you find you know oh, okay we've got the shopping center that's the size of an asteroid and we have aliens here who have to wear environmental suits because they can't breathe oxygen and they the immune system won't let them be around other organisms that are not native to the local planet. And we've got, you know, alien drug dealers and we've got, you know, shipyard manufacturers and we've got, you know, all these different alien species clamoring to, you know, to do trade with human or with uh, human civilization. We've got, you know, all this off world tech and we've got all these, you know, different uh, remote storage units, these orbitals floating out in space. And so it definitely gets more space opera as it goes on. And I think that's a process of the editing. Because when I started writing Stormblood, I wasn't as familiar with space opera as I am now. And I think the book changed. It was it was much more grounded back then. And I was and I was focusing on character a lot more in my first draft, especially. So I never really thought of, you know, trying to incorporate space opera motifs and space opera, uh, you know, sort of a, an energy, basically. And uh, so I was just writing what I knew, and most of what I wrote back then was cyberpunk. Uh, but then as the book developed, and as I went through the editing process again and again, I think I started doing a lot more space opera. And so that's why – and books two and three are going to be a lot more space opera, the books as they go on. But I think that it makes for an interesting clash. And it's because I initially thought that the mixture of cyberpunk and space opera was going to be hard to sell. Uh, because you usually have, you know, the altered carbons and ghosts in the shells where it's all set in one, you know, neon dunked city. Or you have the big space operas, uh, Star Wars-esque stories where it's, you know, 20 planets, 10 moons and a whole, you know, a fleet the size of, you know, a nebula that comes shooting through to save the day. And my book's neither of those things. Mm. My book is somewhere in the middle. And so I was initially not sure if it would sell, but as it happens, it, you know, it, it sold to the first publisher that ever read it. So shows that I know. Um, <laughs> but yes, but yeah, but I would say it's definitely a lot more space opera in terms of world building. And uh, I try to incorporate as much weird and alien tech as I can because it's in, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting to have that juxtaposition between, you know, really, you know, going to a coffee house or going to a bar, but yet that bar is basically you know, built to accommodate alien species and all the tables and all the cutlery and whatever is all, you know, reinforced to to be able to be gripped by men and aliens who are wearing heavy suits that they wear on their ships. So they come along from their spaceships, have a drink, 
have a, you know, have a drink at a dockside bar and then go off to, you know, the next solar system, whatever. And I think, for example, you see that in uh, The Gutter Prayer by Gareth Hanrahan. You see characters, you know, basically going to universities and coffee shops, coffee houses and just talking. And then in the next sequence, you've got them going up against these writhing monsters who live like in this basically all these carvings that run throughout the city. And that juxtaposition, I think, is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And you can get you can get a lot of interesting genres and experiences just by having that, that comparison. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and you talked a little bit about the alien tech. Can you, I guess, detail a little bit about the, you know, the creation of the storm tech and what exactly its effects are on the body? Uh, the creation of it would be telling, um, but <laughs> it is basically, I haven't even got to that point yet, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> uh, but um yeah, it is from a long extinct alien species that, you know, and it is basically this blue moving organism that once it's injected into your body, it changes everything about you. It changes your, it increases your sense of smell, your hearing, your strength, your sight, basically superhuman, superhuman abilities, basically. And it also, you know, changes a lot of other things that are a lot more gross. For example, it changes the way you smell. So if you have it in you, you're going to have this sickly sweet stench coming from you. You'd, and the more that you smell, the stronger that the storm tech is in you, the more, the worse, the more sickly sweet you smell. So, and aliens have the same, have, it has the same effect on a lot of aliens as well. So a character actually, the main character actually comments that this other alien species smells exactly the way he does because they both have the same other alien DNA in them both. Uh, so yeah, the more that you, you, the more that you give in to this alien DNA, this alien DNA that basically craves adrenaline and aggression that rewrites your body chemistry to, you know, the same thrill that you get from, you know, going on a roller coaster or going to a party or whatever, it basically rewrites your whole body chemistry to crave that, to basically crave it through adrenaline and aggressions. There are people who go out and you know, we'll go and commit arson or rob a store or do something even more dangerous, like, like, you know, confront a criminal or do, you know, just because their body demands it. And the more that you fight it, the more that you, you know, go back against it, sometimes it can get, the, uh, it will be sedated, but then it can come back stronger. So you have to find a way to re- have a release one way or another. You can't just ignore it. Mm-hmm. And so the more that you feed it, the more, the stronger it gets in you and the more danger it craves. And that's the the other conflict in the narrative that this main character's basically got to solve a murder mystery, but then he keeps running into trouble. And so every danger and dangerous encounter he has, the stronger that it gets in him. And so after one really, you know, traumatic incident, he comes out of it and he's like, I can hear twice as well as I could just before that. I can, I can smell people like two blocks away. And you know, and it's and as the novel progresses, you see how much, uh, how strong he gets. And you know, there are other side effects. You know, he starts, you know, growing a lot. His body hair becomes a lot more thicker. He he can't get drunk because the uh, the storm tech neutralizes alcohol, so he can drink whatever he likes and not get drunk. Which is something I'm sure a lot of us will be willing to inject ourselves with alien DNA for, uh, myself included, possibly. <laughs> uh, it you know makes him crave like acids and salts and curries and you know makes him you know crave new experiences and in order to repel this he's got to wear a suit of armor 
that the inside is basically laid with this carpet of tendrils and abrasives that basically rub against his body like a massage to basically quell and suppress the storm, the, the storm tech. And um, that's something that a lot of some people have commented on. They're like, that's really weird. I've never read a suit, like a, a soldier that wears armor that's got tentacles inside of it. And I'm like, well, you know, well, you know, it's alien technology. It's unprecedented, right? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so that's that's the sort of thing I try to do to incorporate the world, build the world building into the idea of this alien DNA, alien DNA as much as I can. I mean, you, if you have this uh, this alien th- DNA in millions of people, and it, because it's hit the drug market and it's impacted, you know, not just soldiers, but you know, millions of other people across the the galaxy. That you know, what? How does society deal with that? You know, that then they would have these, you know, these running tracks that are open twenty four seven for people who have these urges to get up at two o'clock in the morning and just run their hearts out, or be able to have these storm tech suppressors that quell the urges or rehab or whatever. And so I tried to build a world building as much as I could into this idea of alien DNA. That you know, how would it change society from top to bottom? And but you know. But I, I am. I think I'm more interested in how it affects the person, and um, and the sort of way, especially as a, as it's in first person, how the main character sees other people, the more addicted he gets, and so he starts to see his friends. I mean, this is going off into mild spoiler territory, mm-hmm. but he starts to see his friends and the people he likes in a different light. Like there's one se- like it's sequence where you know after he's had gone through something. He starts, you know, look at his friend who's, you know, trying to just tell him, come on, mate, we've had a rough day. Let's go to bed. And his mind is basically a runaway bullet train and he can't stop because that's the way he focused his focus. And he has this person who's trying to tell him, you know, stop, you know, and he sees this as a threat. So he starts, you know, his lips start peeling back from his jaws. His hands start curling into claws and the fists and his voice gets thicker and he says, don't you dare stop. Don't you stop telling me this, like back away from me. Mm. And that's the sort of thing I'm interested in. I'm not particularly as interested in as um, the the galactic consequences as such, but I'm more interested in how this one guy sitting in a room with his best friend, uh, you know, how does that, how does their friendship change because it's alien DNA? How does he, how does the way that, you know, how does he feel about these other people? You know, how does that change? And, you know, what are the consequences to, you know, know that you could kill your friend, you could snap his, his neck, you know, with a flick of your wrist and to ha- know, and to know that your friend knows this and that he's still sticking by with you and he still wants to do things with you and knowing that you're a hair's breath away from that. And you've got to constantly back away from the edge. You know, what does that do to your relationship? And you know, how can friendship survive something like that? How can you survive something like that? And that's what I find interesting. And that's what I tried to weave into the book as much as possible. I got you. All right. So, um, you know, I, I kind of ask, you know, are there any novels out there that you feel, you know, kind of compare to yours, you know, besides like the altered carbons and, you know, do androids dream of electric sheeps out there. But, you know, would you say that there's a book that compares or would you say that you just have like maybe influences that influence these ideas? No, I, w- I would definitely say the Red Rising series compares to mine, especially books two and three in that series. I would, I would definitely say, you know, not just, you know, the, you know, a very fo- tightly focused space opera, 
but the idea of uh, friendship and relationships and brotherhood that, you know, fighting for a cause and, you know, a cause that's not just, you know, to, you know, de defeat the big bad or to, you know, overthrow society or whatever, but the idea of, you know, a cause to find, to do right by your friends and to do right by your brothers and your, your people, you know, that's definitely something I took a lot from that series and it's in every cell of this book. It's in every page of this book. And so I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't give it, you know, say it was a strong influence and it strongly compares to uh, my book. Uh, another series that you didn't mention probably be uh, the Expanse series, both the TV show and the books. Um, I read the first book before I wrote Stormblood and I saw most of the show before, I think whatever seasons were available of it before the, um, before the show, before I wrote Stormblood. So yeah, it, it definitely had a big influence and the idea of, um, you know, I guess gritty, messy, uh, space opera settings. Like, you know, I really liked the idea of belters, how, uh, you know, these people that are living in the space station, so their bones are. Uh, elongated from living in you know low gravity and they have these different accents and they have this different you know uh, dialogue and this different you know this different jargon you know that really interests me it's not just so much the you know the science of it all but you know how much it influences society how much it influences the individual that really strikes the chord in me and th that's what I try to really you know drive home you know and that there's a lot of the expanse influence stuff in book two especially but uh, yeah, and and the whole idea of you know this weird alien DNA that in that plays havoc with the body chemistry and the brain, and you know has all these weird you know landscapes and you know plays this trickery like that's something that I'm really interested in as well. It's not just so much okay we've discovered these ruins, uh, you know, but it it has an active influence. So that's definitely uh, has has had an impact on me. And another author I've come to realize again is Alistair Reynolds. Um, partially because he has a really interesting aesthetic in his book that it's a very weird gothic aesthetic. Have you ever read any of his books? Uh, I haven't. I, I've got a few of his just through Heshet, but I haven't actually sat down to read one yet. Okay. Yeah, but like in like the book that I read recently of his, Chasm City, basically there's an entire metropolis that's had this nanotech plague. So that's that's basically – uh, pl played havoc with the buildings, with people's insides. If they've got metal and machinery in them, like it's basically cha like changed them and changed the buildings. So these buildings have become like this map, become you know into these twisted giant cathedrals and these masses of molten metal and glass. And you know it's and you know the whole architecture of the built of these buildings of the city has changed the class system and changed the way that people you know, interact with each other and, you know, cut off access to some parts. And so some people who don't have machinery in them who are not affected have become rich. And, you know, it, it's a really interesting juxtaposition when you have people who are in this basic, basically a giant cathedral spaceship, and yet they're wearing kimonos and having speaking with French, you know, French accents and speaking, you know, using jargon that's a mix of English and Russian. You know that's really interesting to me, and I would definitely think say that that's an uh, that's an uh, approach I'd like to take an influence because it's not just you know space isn't just you know all glamour and glitz and the only conflict really is is war, but this really grounded gritty aesthetic like you see that a lot in um you know in the Mandalorian. Obviously, it's not an influence on me because it came out like a few months ago, but 
that sort of aesthetic that you've got that big, you know, high tech armor and this high tech spaceships with, you know, run down buildings and, you know, ed- cities on the edge of nowhere that like, that's really interesting to me. And I'd say that's definitely an influence on my stuff. Yeah. I gotcha. Um, so, uh, I guess tell me, tell me a little bit about how, I guess, book one feeds into book two. So I'm assuming you're working on book two now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the book one is not a, one of those books where it's part one of a three part series. You can read book one as a standalone, uh, I sh- probably shouldn't be telling you this because I would like to eat and I would like you to buy books two and three. Uh, <laughs> I have expensive gin ha- habits. Um, yeah, but book one, you know, you can read that and wrap up the story as it is. It's not, you know, it doesn't end on a cliffhanger. It doesn't end. It's not one part of a major saga. I think I said earlier that I, like, I think I, a muscle twitches under my eye whenever I open a book and it's this, big sprawling epic with 15 POVs and half of them don't even meet by the end of the, the end of 600 pages. And then you have, to, it's basically a warm up for the next three or four books in the saga. Uh, that's not what I'm doing here. It's basically just a wrap. The narrative wraps up, but if you want to find out how things continue on, you'll have to read the next two books. And because I, I didn't have a book deal by the time I started outlining book two, so book two kind of functions in the same way, but I think what I was speaking about earlier on that I um, changed things, uh, changed the way the narrative went. So I did, I have set up things in book two that will be answered in book three. So it's a little more long-term, but you know, the, the things that happen in book one definitely have consequences, consequences in book two. Uh, one of the best things that Breaking Bad does is that everything in that series has consequences. There's no, there is no point in which they will drop a conflict that happened in book in season two, uh, and not continue it in season three because they want to do something more interesting. You know, the way characters feel about other people from a previous season that continues on, you know, it's a continuation. It doesn't just end and we have a new conflict because we have a new villain and a new set of events. Like no, things continue on and they keep feeding into the the past narrative feeds into the present. And that's really interesting because, again, that's how people work. People don't just conveniently forget uh, that they hate another character's guts because, you know, we've got another season coming up. We've got to, uh, you know, find up new things to be to have arguments about. Um, so that's what I try to do. And whenever I do come to a, come to a bit of a bl- stumbling block, I'm like, okay, I'm not really sure how to continue this character's arc. I always go back and say, okay, what have I left a little messy what have i done that's can be continued on mm-hmm. and i think i think that's a little more interesting because it gives you a sort of continuity that this character lives and breathes and that things happen off screen and that's one of the good advantages of writing first person is that you can ignore a character for 50 pages but when they come back and they talk about something that's been bothering them you kind of hint that they've been dealing with this off off the page and that's that's really interesting that they have a life of their own, and so that's the sort of thing I like to do. Gotcha. Um, so uh, tell me, tell me about uh, some books you've read lately that maybe you'd recommend. Maybe anything that's uh, coming out or has, has been released, you know, here recently. 
Uh, yeah, because Nick Martell is going to be listening to this, uh, he better be. Uh, I'm going to recommend Kingdom of Liars, which I read from him. It's not out yet, or it might be by the time this goes live. That's a really good fantasy, and it has some really interesting ideas about magic and how magic works psychologically and how, you know, our memories basically dictate how we live and how we um, experience the world and experience other people and how... So the, the idea of storytelling, you know, and how that's changed and altered by magic, that's really interesting. And it's interesting because his character is not likable. And in an industry where the matter of like character likability is almost a foregone conclusion, it's really interesting to have a character that Nick knew that was annoying and was a pain and that he wrote him anyway, but yet he's still compelling. So that's really good. Uh, I also recently finished Matter by Ian and Banks, which is the final culture novel that I read, which is a bit of a bittersweet send-off, um, you know, to finally wrap up a book like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I listened to We Are the Dead by Mike Shackle. I uh, went on a cruise and I'm like, you know, but, you know, back when cruise ships were still a thing. Right. Uh, listened to it and, you know, that's an interesting book to read when you're in a buffet surrounded by 500 people to listen on your headphones. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I, it's a really, really good book. You know, it's got, again, like the, the pacing of a runaway bullet train. You know, I, I, my brain just doesn't allow me to write narratives that have eight or like in how many, how many ever POVs there are in that book, you know, and have them all, you know, have these little scenes that intersect and cross over with each other. I'm like, my brain doesn't work like that anymore, but I do enjoy listening to someone who's able to juggle those, keep juggling all those balls. So that was really, really good. Uh, I'm finally listening to Liza Locklemore. Liza, reading it. Uh, I tried to read it when I was younger, and it didn't really grab me for some reason. But now I'm reading it, and I'm like 80 pages away from the end, and I can't put it down. It is so good. Um, oh, yeah, I'm also listening to Last Smile in Sunder City by Luke Arnold, and who, you know, you know Australians represent – um, no, I listened to, I read an early, uh, arc of it. I got an arc of it, but now I, I had to listen to it in audio because it is the sort of book that demands it to be read aloud. You know, nicotine and whiskey stained voice. Of the protagonist just demands that you listen to it in audio. Mm-hmm. And I really like the juxtaposition, I guess, of, you know, these traditional magic, you know, you know, you have, you have your elves, your dwarves, your centaurs, you know, all your typical fantasy creatures. And yet these guys are like populated in universities and townhouses and seedy bars. And, you know, the dwarves have like, you know, basically like a machinery shop and all that, like that I find really cool that, you know, the fantasy isn't just, you know, these fabled creatures who live in the hills and the mountains, like they they live in a down to earth industrial society and how that, you know, plays up against traditional fantasy tropes. I mean, that's the reason tropes exist, yeah? I mean, it's a kind of a subversion. Uh, you know, you get to take, you know, traditional experiences that uh, in a genre and basically throw them upside down and see what you what you get out of them. And I think that's, that's a book that did it terrifically. And, you know, I really enjoyed his past interview uh, with you. Like, it really helped, you know, enha- it enhanced my experience of uh, listening to the book for the second time. And it's interesting because although he reads it with an American accent, there's Luke Arnold definitely has some Australianisms and Australian jargon into the book. So it's quite an interesting experience listening to it. 
no, but it's it's a really terrific terrific book. Yeah. Um, Good. What am I? Some, oh yeah, I'm reading. Uh, rereading. About to start rereading Kings of the Wild, uh, which is a phenomenal book. Uh, it is. Yeah, it's a sort of book I just love to keep reading again and again. And Bloody Rose is even better. You know, I, I just really adore it. Yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed uh, chatting with Nick the other day, and, and definitely looking forward to uh, to book three in that series. But yeah, there's. You know, I was telling him, you know, Kings of the Wild was kind of like my introduction to Orbit as a publisher. And, uh, I mean, it's been a, it has been a lovely relationship since that day. <laughs> so, um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I, I agree, uh, definitely on, uh, Last Mile in Center City. I, I really enjoyed chatting with Luke and he does a great job narrating his own book. Um, he really brings the world to life in his narration, uh, which I really loved. And that's, that's why I, uh. I brought him onto my onto my world building panel. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's hard not to imagine Long John Silver uh, being the protagonist of his book, listening to his voice. But right. yeah, which which is an interesting experience when Long John Silver is sitting down and talking to elves and dwarves. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I, and I actually had a uh, had a little uh, fangirl moment last night because he followed me on Twitter. So. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, but uh, but yeah, I, and I agree on We Are the Dead. I, you know, I, I thought Mike Shackle did a phenomenal job, and he just released the cover for book two, uh, which it. man, I cannot wait for that book. Um, yeah, he actually sent me a copy after uh, he he found out I was a, a huge fan of Red Rising as well. So uh, I think he started following me on Instagram, and he goes, "Oh my gosh, I you know I think he saw my post where." Like I got blurbed on one of Pierce's like Instagram photos for Dark Age, nice. and um, he was like, "I'm going to send you a copy of my book." And I go, "Okay, I- I've seen the cover of your book because of Peter McLean, but sure." And then I read it, and yeah, I was like, "Okay, instant fan." <laughs> yeah. So. And I don't think you you didn't ask, but the books I'm looking forward to, um, and I haven't, you know, we haven't heard about yet. He's obviously Red Rising Six. Oh yeah. Uh, how he's going to wrap up the, you know what he's done in the previous book is going to be interesting. Um, a book as well that I'm looking forward to, I think is Hopeland by Ian McDonald. And Ian McDonald is not really an author that's too well known, uh, especially in fantasy circles, because he doesn't write fantasy. But, you know, he wrote the, the Lunar Trilogy, which is a phenomenal trilogy. You know, even if you read that book for the prose, it's just, it's just delicious. It's just, it's incredible. But I'm really looking forward to, uh, Copeland because he's done uh, three books that are basically set in India, Brazil, and Turkey. They're about you know twenty or thirty years in the future, and it's basically how does the technology and culture influence the future in those worlds? And you know he's got such a relaxed pace. You know, plot isn't really a thing in his books, but you know, but characters certainly are, and so you just get swallowed up in the atmosphere. And it's just, it's great. So, and I'm really looking forward to that. He's, I don't think he's finished reading, writing it yet, but whenever he does, I'll be, I'll be buying it. I gotcha. Yeah. He, um, he's written here lately for like tour. He's written the Luna novels. Is that right? Yeah. 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 They published the Lance in, uh, in the U S with tour. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I knew I'd seen his name before. Um, and I think he had like a, I think his latest one was, a. Uh, a tour.com novella menace from far side. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I gotcha. Um, go ahead. 
Yeah, yeah, the third book in the Black Iron series by Gareth Henrahan, of course. Oh my gosh, that, right? <laughs> um, there's so much story in those books, seriously. There's so much weird packed into like every page. I don't know how he does it, man. It's, yeah, it's those books are crazy good. Yeah. Like that's what fantasy should be, you know, and, and that's a bit of a dangerous thing to say. <laughs> but, um, you know, you've had, you know, we've, you know, you talk about, you know, we've talked about tropes a little bit, but you see, you know, you go on any form and you ask people, you know, what's the sort of book, you know, a new fantasy book I'd like to read or what's a trope that you'd like to read about? And the answer, 90% of the time, is Tolkien or it's this other 80s fantasy. And if it's not that, it's Mistborn. If it's not Mistborn, it's, you know, Malazan. And if it's not Malazan, it's, you know, The Name of the Wind. And those are you know, the ones that I've read are great. But Lord of the Rings, you know, that was written in what the thirties. Mm. Uh, have 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 we not finished showing the cud? Have we not moved on a little bit? You know, like you know, I love I love the films. So the the Lord of the Rings films are some of my favorite of all time. But you know, have, is this really the the most creative and exuberant that fantasy can do? And so I, so when I read a book. Uh, especially in a fantasy book, I'm not really looking for, you know, ye old English poetry and tales of, you know, pure, pure heroism and, you know, big horse trots across a uh, big empty wilderness that has a name that's 20 characters long. Like I'm looking for something that's weird and up close and that I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And in the God of Prayer, there's something like, like five monsters that I've never seen in the first like 50 pages that I've never seen before in fantasy. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, these patrol guards that are made out of wax. I mean, come on. Like, how can you not be intrigued by that? Right. You know? yeah. yeah. So that is, yeah. Yeah. He, he is, he's amazing. Like, <laughs> like hand hand, like his imagination is just, is, Oh, I don't know. the The only thing I can compare it to. Have you read uh, any uh, Robert Jackson Bennett? Yes. The yeah. I was actually going to mention that. Yeah, I read The City of Stairs. Okay. And I'd say that's a little more accessible. Maybe not. I, I would. That's a little more standard, more accessible than Gareth's books are. Uh, yeah, but like, I'm not comparing, saying one's better than the other, of course. I mean, they're completely different. I mean, the voice is completely different. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I really do enjoy the fact that, you know, something like City of Stairs, instead of just being, you know, oh, our fantasy world is uh, fake England again. Uh, it's, you know, he uses, to, draws inspiration from Russia and India and uh, Central Asia. I think that's really interesting. And, the you know, the mo- the technology and the idea of, you know, monsters and magic that he implements is and how and the whole idea of colonial influences that i find really interesting uh because i don't think it's really something that's discussed too much in fantasy i mean uh maybe nk jemison but not too many other people do colonialism in the same way and i think he did it really well well i actually was gonna say uh foundry side so his his newest oh, oh. <laughs> uh, his newest series, the Founders trilogy. Um, I'm actually listening to Shorefall right now, which comes out uh, Tuesday, I believe. Um, and that is like the only thing that I think holds a candle, you know, Talonman, uh, to <laughs> to the Gutter Prayer as far as uh, you know a world I've never seen before with magic. I don't think I've ever read about. 
and just like just these complex systems of of ways to do it and just the feel of it just feels like something i've never come across yeah no um, I'll have to I, I would reckon i would recommend it if you haven't if you haven't read foundry side I, I definitely think you should you should check it out one more book on the to be read pile <laughs> I mean, it's never, it's never, never going to stop growing. Your... <laughs> I mean, you have, you have all these wonderful authors out there that are, you know, just, just throwing books at you. I mean, it's not going to stop. So, <laughs> I mean, could like people just, could authors just stop writing books for like a year or two? So the rest of us can just catch up. I mean, myself not included, you know, I can, I can write whatever I want and have whatever books I want. But can, you know, publishing as a whole just take a break for like a year so we can all catch up? I'm sure that will be all right. Yeah, right. And this is the thing about it is everybody's like, oh, I'll get so much reading done during this pandemic. Dude, I have I have finished two books since this whole thing started. Like I have been slammed with work. And then when I'm done with work, I go take my dogs for a walk and then I eat dinner and I'm like, you know, it's time to go to bed because I'm going to do this all tomorrow. And I just, yeah, I just finished one today, this morning and wrote a review. <laughs> it's been two weeks since I wrote my last review. It's been, it's been crazy, but I've also been doing this whole, you know, con thing. So <laughs> yeah, I imagine that would keep you occupied. Been a little busy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So, before we get to that random question and it's pretty, a pretty quick answer. Uh, can you tell me in the rest of the audience, especially the people that have been on Twitter and I've seen this and Nick again is included. Nick always comes up in this conversation. Um, can you say the last name of, of a particular author named Sam who wrote a beautiful fantasy novel called city of lies? I say Hawk. She says Hork. And I'm very confused. It's Hawk. I have met her three times and been at her book launch and read her great book. Well, listen to it for that matter. It is Hawk, All like right. a bird. All right. I thought so. It's just it's just uh, a, a, an Aussie pronunciation. Is that what it is? Is it just is it just well, like an not, R? I'm pretty sure it's just Hawk. Like is like I know that you Americans have difficulty saying anything that's uh, foreign <laughs> from other countries that are not from down, from California. But oh, no, it is, it's oh, <laughs> That was a bad attempt. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, I'm no, from but, Alabama, so we get made fun of all the time. It's not a big deal. <laughs> honestly, yeah. I Look, I am no stranger to having my own name butchered. Uh, what do you yeah. get, Zal? It's Zal. It's Polish. It's Zal. <laughs> Hey, for what, for what it's worth, when I bumped into George R. R. Martin at uh, Finland and he spoke to me and I said, hey, do you remember I was, you know, the guy who did your podcast? He's like, oh, yeah, you're um, you're Jeremy Sazzle. Oh, gosh. And I said, yes, because I wasn't about to correct George R. R. Martin on the very first day of my very first con. Exactly. So, <laughs> so I was Jeremy Sazzle. <laughs> now, it's Zal. It's Zal, damn it. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Could you please have like a nickname like that's in air quotes? That's just Sazzle. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Sazzle is all. <laughs> the sizzling Sazzle. Oh my gosh! I'm gonna start calling you Sazzle. You need to change your. You need to change your Twitter handle to Sazzle. Yeah. Yeah. Please do it. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, all right, Jeremy. Well, first off, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I know uh, it's an early wake-up call for you, down under. No, it's 11 a.m., you know, like, 
you know, I mean, I do have to, you know, go out and get my motorcycle and go screaming across the desert with the rest of my Mad Max Fury Road clan. But <laughs> otherwise, I've got plenty of time. There you go. <laughs> uh, but guys, uh, first off, um, Jeremy is going to be on a panel alongside Devin Madsen and Nick Martell and Sam Hawk and a debut author from tour named Scott Drakeford uh, during my virtual convention that I am running on May 16th from 7 a.m. to 8.30 p.m. Central Time. I'm going to die by the end of that, by the way. Um, but it's called MaydayCon. And Jeremy was one of the first people to, uh, to throw his name in the hat for it. Uh, he's going to be on a panel uh, titled Midnight Special, debuting during a pandemic. I hope you're, I hope you're ready for that. <laughs> I just love how three of the five, five authors there, all Australian. Yep. Like, are you trying, like how, okay, I know that we've got Mad Max and all that for real <laughs> down here, but you know. I just love that we're that apocalyptic, you know, even the namesake is Australians are just synonymous with, you know, chaos. <laughs> well, I have to say for the fourth or fifth time that he's been mentioned, Nick Martell came up with debuting during the pandemic. So <laughs> we can just blame him for everything. Just and I hope him. he's listening. That, and he gets all your fault. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, guys, so we, uh, just to kind of reiterate, so we've got seven panels, uh, all are going to be about an hour and a half each, five authors each. It's going to be pretty much an all day event with me moderating. At some point I may just turn my camera off and let everybody talk, but, uh, it's going to be an amazing time. And obviously, you know, like I said, Jeremy's going to be there when we talk about, uh, you know, his debut Stormblood some more, uh, along with some other wonderful authors that are going to be coming out. So definitely check that out. Uh, but as far as Stormblood, again, it hits on June 4th across the June pond 4th, and in yeah. Canada, hopefully in the U.S. sooner rather than later. Typically, yeah, I know look, that's usually like six to eight months later. but Sure. But all I can say is that if you are from the U.S., what you can do is get it from Book Depository. Oh, yeah. They have free, free international shipping and, you know, they ship, you know, again, anywhere in the world, basically. So, you know, if you want a copy of the book, you can just go through there. And they're an Amazon company, so you're not giving your money to a mysterious, you know, uh, unethical third-party seller. You're just giving it to a – just just an unethical third-party seller, not not a mysterious, unknown one. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I've used Book Depository several times uh, for UK I, editions and stuff, and I highly recommend them. They're, they're amazing. And typically in the U.S., you can get your book within – say seven to 14 days is about typical. Yeah. So, and it's, it's awesome. So, but yeah, definitely, definitely check out Stormblood. Uh, I'll be hopefully finishing it here soon and writing reviews. So you can check out that on fanfightaddict.com. Uh, as far as Jeremy goes, you can find him on Twitter at Jeremy Zal. That's S Z A L not Sazzle. Uh, you can it's also find him on but I'll get, I'll let you, I'll let that slide. <laughs> you can also find him on Facebook. Not Sazzle. <laughs> Jeremy oh, why did I mention Zoll. that I'm never living this down you're not going to uh, you can also find his website at jeremyzall.com but Jeremy just lastly thank you again for coming on uh, I'm yeah. loving Stormblood I hope everybody else does and hope everybody tunes in to watch you either make a fool of yourself or give really good info on pandemics in Australia <laughs> It's just, it's just Australia. We don't need to mention the pand pandemic. <laughs> uh, 
All right, man. Well, uh, you enjoy uh, the rest of your weekend, and uh, well, which is pretty much the rest of today. And uh, <laughs> and we'll chat again soon. No worries. Thanks, man.